All right, Acts chapter 16, I'm going to pick it up in verse 16. It happened as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. And following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed. And turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans." The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he had brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed with his whole household. Father, what a marvelous story is laid before us this morning. And I pray, Lord, that for all the familiarity of this story, as it may be for some, that you will show us rich insights here that will affect our hearts I pray that you would bless our study of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 46 days until Christmas. 46 days, and this year marks the 80th holiday season since the most popular game in American history flew off the shelves. 80 years of Monopoly. The concept was first introduced as an economics game in 1903, but the game was truly developed and worked out in 1935 by an out-of-work heating contractor named Charles Darrow. He would soon be so rich that he could heat his own houses and hotels on Park Place and Boardwalk. He made a mint. Monopoly almost didn't pass go. It almost wasn't picked up at all. In fact, Parker Brothers looked at the game when it was presented to them and said, this is far too complicated for the average person. And so they didn't want to market it. So Charles Darrow had several copies printed up and released independently among small stores in the Northeast, and they flew off the shelves. Parker Brothers recognized this and quickly picked it up, thinking, well, at least we'll get a couple of good seasons out of this game. And again, that was 80 years ago. According to Hasbro, which bought out Parker Brothers in 1991, more than 275 million Monopoly games have been sold in the last eight decades. Think about it, that's more than six billion little greenhouses. (laughs) 2.25 billion big red hotels. And that also includes half a billion get-out-of-jail-free cards. Because you get two per game. 
You get one on the community chest card, the yellow card that has the picture there of rich Uncle Pennybags in full tuxedo with wings flying out of a birdcage. And then there's the other one which shows up on the chance deck of cards with Pennybags in a striped convict uniform and he is being booted out of prison. Amazing game, and, and people worldwide now have played this game and love this game, and you can, you can pick up the 80th anniversary edition of Monopoly this year, and the houses are actually made out of wood like they were in the beginning. Or, you can fill four Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes <laughs> and drop them off next Sunday or the following Sunday. There are all kinds of interesting stories that that come along with this whole Monopoly history. One of them happened in 1967. James Robert Ringrose. How many of you know who James Robert Ringrose is? Any FBI agents with it? No, okay. He was a fugitive in 1966 on the FBI's top ten most wanted list. They finally apprehended him in 1967, and when they picked him up, he pulled out of his back pocket something he had been carrying for the occasion, a get-out-of-jail-free card. (laughs) It didn't work. Acts chapter 16 is a story of getting out of jail free, but not just Paul and Silas. Four people. Four people in the story before us. Four people and a household. Get out of jail free. Four people, two who don't even realize they're in prison, and two who sing like they're not in prison at all. We begin in verse 16. Verses 16 through 18 tells of the first prisoner. It's a slave girl with a spirit of divination. We read this at the end of our study on Wednesday. A slave girl with a spirit of divination. Divination in the Greek is puthon. It's where we get our word python. Because it was a snake spirit. In Greek mythology, the python was a serpentine dragon. And this dragon was a protector of oracles and a bringer of prophecies. But this serpentine dragon, this Pythian dragon as it was called, was slain by Apollo. And then Apollo absorbed its prophetic power. The Greeks believed that after that happened that this Pythian spirit could enter into or be channeled by fortune tellers and soothsayers. And so often they would call upon the Puthon, the spirit of the Python. Well, we know that the Pythian spirit was in all truth nothing more or less than a demon. You see, it would be wrong for us, we would be misunderstanding the truth of the history of of the Greek mythology and the Greek gods to say that it was all just myth. It's not all myth. It's myth based on the truth of demonism, of demonic power. And so this demon spirit is in this girl. Does she know? Is she aware? Is she oblivious to what's going on? I don't know. She's a slave to her masters, used by them for profit. And they would drag her around and think about the life that she was living. As they made her go here and there, prophesying of things for their gain. This demonic spirit is dogging the ministry of Paul and Silas. By the way, you notice there in verse 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, Luke is now writing, well he's been writing the whole time, but now he's with Paul. In chapter 16, suddenly it goes to the the first person plural, we, Luke, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So the team of the four of them are now going to the place of prayer. Paul is greatly annoyed. He's just put out. I began thinking in my years of ministry how, I hate to say it, but how often that's happened. How often I was greatly annoyed. Not by any of you and not by anyone in the Bridge Fellowship. But I began to realize long about my second youth ministry experience and then on into my third that the Lord saw to it that in every student ministry I worked there was at least one greatly annoying demonically possessed teenager. Seriously, was thinking about this. There, there were kids who, who would who would just disrupt, who would cause problems. And, and and as a youth pastor, you think, oh Lord, why do they have to be here? Why can't I just have the easy kids? <laughs> and he always would show me, well, Rick, 
there's a reason I have them here and you need to get over yourself because right now you're annoying me. (laughs) Why did Paul call her out? Why was Paul greatly annoyed? He's a minister of the gospel for goodness sakes. Here's a demon-possessed girl, obviously possessed. And he's annoyed by her? Well, it was an annoying advertisement. Of course it would bug Paul. I understand that. Paul didn't need his ministry to be approved by, or worse, attributed to, a demonic presence. And it annoyed him. He didn't want to be aligned with demonic spirits or pagan mythology. And the people here who are hearing the message of the gospel for the first time now are hearing this pagan girl, this woman with a Pythian spirit, as they all understood, is proclaiming Paul and Silas. Oh, well then Paul and Silas must be one of us. Pagans like us. Uh Uh-uh. Different message. Paul is annoyed. Even if what she said was true, and it was, she was speaking the truth, they were servants of the Most High God. But the medium was not true. The demon was false. The demon had ulterior motives. Gang, this is not how we get things done in the church. This kind of loud, boisterous advertising, we are not peddlers, we are not barkers, we are not marketers, we are not sellers of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 2.21 says we're not like many peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity... But as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. I think there's just too much marketing that goes on in the church. We shouldn't have to be tugged at emotionally to make faith decisions as followers of Jesus. And the world doesn't need to see us marketing ourselves like the world markets itself. We are different. We don't just have something that can make your life a little bit better, like a pill or a health club. No, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is for all eternity. A life changed, a life saved. And the the depth of this, we're not even going to fully recognize until we are in eternity looking back. And then we will say, this was our message. This is what we had to offer the world. Unlike anything that has ever been offered on this planet. So it was greatly annoying to Paul. I I get that. It was also greatly grieving to Paul. That word annoyed can also be translated grieved. Paul is grieved over this. Here is this young girl who, who is possessed and Paul sees the spirit for what it is, a demonic jailer who has her in prison. And I love it. He turns around finally and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. But here's the question I would ask Paul. Why'd you wait? She's been dogging you guys for many days. Why not free her on the first day this happened? Why are you waiting, Paul? And that led me to another thought. Why did Jesus wait? Why didn't He just heal everybody? Oh, we have scenes where Jesus just sits down on a mountainside and He heals and heals and heals and heals and He doesn't stop healing for three or four days. We also have times where Jesus walks through a crowd of people gathered around the pool there in Jerusalem and heals one guy and nobody else. Why, Jesus? Why didn't you heal every soul you came across? And it's because, and Scripture is clear on this point, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, there is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven, even, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 3, even a time to heal. If there's a time to heal, then that means, my friends, listen, there is a time not to heal. I think, brothers and sisters, there's tremendous freedom in recognizing, as David did, Psalm 31.15, my times are in your hands. And whether it's a time to heal or a time not to heal, my times are in your hands. It's not always my time. His timing is perfect. Now, you don't think that Paul and Silas, when they went back to Lydia's house in the evenings, weren't talking about this Sitting down, what are we going to do with her? What can we do for her? Praying about it, Lord, she's, she's following us everywhere. She's shouting us out. And, 
Lord, what do you want us to do? And I think what we can see in this little vignette is the best healing happens when the time is right. And the first thing Paul and Silas do is they wait on the Lord. They don't immediately act. But when they act, the name of Jesus becomes her get-out-of-jail-free card. And she is immediately released. That's why Jesus came, you know, that we might get out of jail for free. Free for us. Very costly for Him. But He said, and I quote Isaiah 61 verse 1, that He came to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. I believe we're in that year. Right now. That age. That season. This is the favorable year of the Lord. This is the year that Jesus came to inaugurate That He came to open up for the world. And so it should be no surprise that this demonically possessed girl is now suddenly free. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 61. A fulfillment of the very life and ministry of Jesus. Doing exactly what He came to do. John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation, that is, the cleansing of defilement for our sins. And listen, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Do you know what that means? We've talked about this verse. It's not universal salvation. It's universal invitation. That the payment has been made that if everybody on the planet, past, present, and future, said yes, Jesus, they would be saved. But here's the deal. Understand, Jesus has one get-out-of-jail-free card per person. The question is, will you take it? Will we use it? Or will we just keep rolling the dice? Trying to get ourselves out. Her freedom was just the beginning of Paul's and Silas's detention. Note this in verse 19. But when her masters saw their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Their hope of profit was gone. You know what? There's only one who will profit for eternity. Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The one about whom the prophets spoke is the only one who will profit us with eternity. But verse 20 says, When they brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion. Note this, being Jews and are proclaiming customs to which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. That's why Paul and Silas are arrested and not Luke and Timothy. Luke and Timothy are Greeks. Paul and Silas at least come off as Jewish. Now Silas has a Greek name, but he's right there at the forefront with Paul. So somehow Luke and Timothy are not arrested. Now they follow along. They're right there watching what's happening. But Paul and Silas get nabbed And what we see going on in verses 20 and 21 is nothing less than class warfare. And I'm going to make a little political comment here. Class warfare is an act of the devil. What's happening here is Jews pitted against Romans. Jews against Romans. They're Jews and they're causing trouble. We're Romans. So they're really not like us. They're really not one of us. The whole idea of us and them, I think, is demonic. Even for us Christians to talk about them, worldly people, I think it's wrong to have that attitude. It is not an us and them. It is is God loves everybody. The Lord wants us all. All created by Him, He wants to save every one of us. So there's only ultimately one us. That's the goal. Right? So maybe part of the reason there was no synagogue in Philippi, and we talked about this Wednesday, no synagogue there at all. 
Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy had to go out to find a place of prayer out by a river. No synagogue. And these masters, having lost profit in their profit, are now pitting Jews against Romans. And so we see an anti-Semitic spirit at work here in Philippi as well. No wonder there's not a strong Jewish contingent there. Well, verse 22 going on tells us, The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now pause for a moment here. How had the second missionary journey of Paul been going so far? How unlike the first one. Now they they met trouble on the first one. They had opposition. There, There were stonings and there were problems on the first one. But this second missionary journey, at least so far, is not exactly the sellout tour of his earlier journey. Madonna would understand that these days. It began this ministry tour of Paul began with that sharp disagreement. That's how it got underway. Remember? Between Paul and Barnabas. Friends, ministry partners, and they divide. Barnabas going to Cyprus and Paul going up through Syria and then on into Asia. And it's likely, and we talked about this midweek too, in Galatians 4 it gives us the indication that perhaps Paul got very sick on this journey. An Asian fever of sorts that may have seriously affected his vision. Their efforts in Asia, in Bithynia, up to the north by the Black Sea, their efforts there were denied by Jesus Himself, blocked by the Lord, what we called holy hindrances. They couldn't go where they felt like they needed to go. And then things seemed to get a little bit better on this trip. Paul meets Timothy. Here's a solid young disciple. Brings him along. Luke shows up. Luke the doctor. Maybe because Paul was so sick. Luke now gets involved. And so he comes along with Paul. The team's growing. It's a good team. Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy. Man, I would, I would tour with those guys. And then Paul gets a vision of a Macedonian man saying, Come over here and help us. Alright, Lord, now things are going to get going. Now we're on the right track. Let's head over to Macedonia. That's what God's got in mind all along. And they arrive and they show up in Philippi. And though the vision was of a Macedonian man, there was no man. Oh, there were men there, but there were no male Jews to speak of. Well, how do you know that? Because... You have to have at least ten observant Jewish men in town to have a synagogue. And there was no synagogue. So you don't have strong Jewish faith being shown there. What you have is a handful of women praying in a group down by the river. And this is what we've been called to. Now remember, Paul has a strong Jewish background, which is somewhat patriarchal. we got a bunch of women here? A Jewish rabbi, upon seeing a group of women, would have turned around and gone the other direction. I'm not going to talk to them. But Paul, filled with the Spirit of God, goes straight to them. We have a little more good news. Just a little. Lydia and her household, they get saved. That's good news? I mean, hey, let's remember there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Luke 15, verse 7. So even if the town had been filled with Jewish people who were believers, who then came to faith in the Lord Jesus, this one woman, this Greek, this Lydia, gets saved and her household. That's good news. It's still not a huge sellout tour, but but it's good news. And just as hope springs eternal, just as it seems like things may be looking up, here comes this Pythian spirit in this slave girl. And all this problem comes because of it. Paul and Silas are now tossed into prison. The preachers are now the prisoners. And consider what the Word tells us. Let's get a very clear picture. First thing that happens is they get caned. They are beaten, the Bible tells us, 
with rods. Jewish law, when it came to beatings, limited the beatings to 40 lashes minus one. So the 39 lashes. And the reason for that was to show some semblance of mercy. The Romans had no such limits in their laws. If you were beaten by a Roman soldier, he could beat you as long as he felt like it. Until his arm got tired. Until he was a little worn out. Furthermore, this this word beaten in the text is rabdizo. And rabdizo, literally, it's, it's in the present active infinitive, which simply means the beatings went on and on and on and on and on. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, that he was beaten times without number. And please understand, that doesn't just mean that Paul was beaten many times. It means he was beaten countlessly. He was beaten without count. That is beyond counting. 39, 40, 41, 55, 72. No one's counting. They beat the tar out of Paul and Silas. Bible commentarian Richard Linsky wrote this. He said, We calmly read these few words, but they are filled with excruciating pain and horrible disgrace. Under the many blows, the skin would have been broken, the blood would ooze out, and the inflamed welts would cover their entire backs. And then, after being caned, they are incarcerated. Verse 24 tells us. Incarcerated. Luke tells us they're tossed into the inner prison. That is a telling statement. Because a typical Roman prison had three aspects to it. Three levels, if you will. Level number one is the communiora. The communiora is the outer court. Now that would be for you know lower crimes, lesser crimes. Um... Sunlight, fresh air, you are, you are incarcerated, but you can move about somewhat. It's what we might call minimum security. The second level, the interiora, were inner cells, barred cells, closed off what we might call maximum security. Level three, which is the inner prison, the Tullianum. And the Tullianum was a dungeon. It was basically a pit with no light, no fresh air, no ventilation of any kind, oppressively hot with the horrid stench of dead or rotting bodies. Nowhere to use the restroom, no facility, so that would add to the stench and the heat and the sweltering nature of this inner prison. This is death row. As far as the Romans were concerned, if you died in there, no big deal, you saved them the hassle. That's where Paul and Silas were. Imagine them there, beaten with rods, and in the innermost prison, the Tullianum. That's where the jailer put them. Why? Because he was told in no uncertain terms to guard them securely. And for a jailer in Rome, (laughs) someone got out, it was on your head. You would just slide right into their place and take their punishment. So he had to guard them as securely as he could. He tosses them into the Tullianum, the inner prison... And guards them there. And archaeologists have now uncovered what they believe to be this very prison in the region of Philippi. And I am not overstating the conditions there. Finally, their feet are put into stocks. Their feet are in the stocks. The stocks would be panels of wood, long panels of wood, with holes across and throughout. The stocks were not just there to hold a prisoner in, especially if you're in the inner prison, where are you going to go? The stocks were there for torture. And the whole idea of the stocks was put one foot in one hole over here and put another foot in the furthest hole you could find over here. Stretching the legs to unbearable position. My daughters are taking ballet. I've tried a few moves at home. It's not good. It's not pretty. Here are Paul and Silas very seriously in 
torture. The Greek word for stocks there is zulon. It just means wood. So it's those wooden stocks. They are in the inner prison, being tortured, their backs covered with bloody welts. If your feet are up in the stocks, where do you, where does your back go? You're either flat down on the floor or up against a wall and trying to shift and trying to find some kind of position of comfort, if possible. And with all this behind you, along with swollen, bleeding back and feet spread out painfully before, with this entire missionary experience behind you, what would you do? What kind of frame of mind do you think you would find yourself in after all of that? Do you think perhaps you might be going, Lord, did we make a wrong turn at Albuquerque? I wonder if Paul perhaps at that point is thinking, Father, should I have gone with Barnabas in the first place? Was I wrong? You think Paul maybe was perplexed? Verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. This is one of the most stunning verses in all the Bible. Because when you stack up the conditions leading up to that verse, that moment, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever for Paul and Silas to be worshipping in that moment, and yet they were. Suddenly the jailhouse is a house of prayer. The cell is a sanctuary. Tertullian, the 2nd century prolific Christian writer, said this. He's the one who wrote, The blood of martyrs is seed. Tertullian also wrote, The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. Paul, aren't you confused? Paul, aren't you dismayed? Aren't you perplexed? Didn't he ever get perplexed? Let's strip away a little bit of the veneer of Paul and understand he absolutely got perplexed. He even said so. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. That word perplexed means to stand in doubt, to be at a loss. Paul said very openly, very honestly, yeah, there are plenty of times in my ministry I was at a loss for what was going on. I did not understand what God was doing. It made no sense in my human mind. I stood in doubt, but I did not despair. It's okay to be perplexed. It's alright to have some, some doubt well up, to be concerned, to be confused, to, to, to say, Lord, what, what is this about? I don't understand. How do you remain free while in prison? When the prison of debt or doubt, when the prison of disease seems to close in around you, When a prison's of depression, discouragement, how do you remain free? Have you ever sat in this sanctuary on a Sunday, listened to teaching and gone, well, that's all well and good for you, Rick, but you don't know what my week has been like. You have no idea what I'm going through here. This all sounds fine in the sanctuary of the Bridge Christian Fellowship with a little waterfall in the background. Ooh, that's all real nice, but I'm dealing with real life. Ever felt that way? How do we remain free when it seems impossible to get free of the prison bars around us? And the answer is right here. You worship. You worship. I don't feel like worshiping. I didn't ask that. I didn't say that. Do you realize that worship has nothing to do with how we feel? That worship has nothing to do with what I need? Worship is welcome to the Spirit of God. We worship. In the darkest hour of night, Luke points out. It's at midnight, so it couldn't be any worse. Couldn't be any darker in this pit where Paul and Silas would not have been able to see each other. They could hear each other. They knew they were there. They could hear other prisoners around moaning, shuffling, trying to get comfortable. 
But it was absolutely dark. And in this darkest of dark hours of night, they worship. And the worship of Jesus is never an exercise in futility. Paul and Silas understood a couple of things. Things to note here that freed them up so that they could sing in the stocks and pray in the prison. They knew that Jesus was present. They knew He was present. How do you know that? He's the fourth man in the furnace. He's the one who shuts the mouths of lions. He's the God who redeems from the pit because He Himself went down to the pit. How many times have we seen in Scripture and throughout history that Jesus is there with the oppressed, present in the prison? He's the one who cried out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, he was quoting Psalm 22 when he said it. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but have no rest. Yet, listen, yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. You know what that means? When we worship, God is enthroned in the worship. Present in the praise. Welcomed by the worship taking place. Why is worship a good idea in the depths? Because God is there. Because He's enthroned upon the praises. There was a song written back in 1979 released by the Imperials sung by Russ Taff. Many of you may recall it. It's not a song that we, I don't think, have even done here. But but the chorus of this song is so impactful to me. First time I heard it was in college, 1983. I was a little sheltered prior to that. I didn't know a lot of the worship music of the church. And and so I was in college and I heard this song and it brought tears to my eyes. And I, I can hardly sing it anymore without choking up. The chorus says, praise the Lord. He can work through those who praise Him. Praise the Lord. For our God inhabits praise. Praise the Lord for the chains that seem to bind you serve only to remind you they drop powerless behind you when you praise Him. Why would I praise God in the prison of despair? Because when you praise God, He is there. Jesus is present in the praise. When you're perplexed, when you're doubting, when you're discouraged, when you're in the painful prison of illness or uncertainty or sorrow... Jesus is there in your midst. Hannah, when she was a little girl, was sitting in the kitchen with a coloring book. Doing a little coloring. She was like three years old. And Cheryl was in the house walking by, doing some housework, and she heard Hannah singing. Singing a little song that she had learned at Sunday school. God is so good. She's saying, God is so good. God is so good. He's so really, actually good. (laughs) I love it. We still sing that around my house. Things aren't going well. Hey, remember, He is really, actually good. God is so good. And He does not leave you alone in the prison. He, He may leave you in the prison... For a time, for a season, like Paul and Silas with with the young slave girl, she was in that prison longer than I would have thought she should have been. I would have let her out immediately just to shut her up for nothing else. They wait. She's still in prison. Now they're in prison. God is so good. And there's a reason they're in prison. You see, the second thing that they knew as they prayed, as they worshipped God in the depths of that prison, is not only is Jesus present, but other prisoners were present. Note the last part of verse 25. It says they were praising God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And that word listening is a rare word in the Greek language. It's epakroomai. No wonder it's rare. It means literally to hear upon or or to listen with rapt attention. 
This is not a casual listening. And it is also written in the imperfect tense, which means they kept on listening to them. Imagine the scene. You're in the darkness. You're in prison yourself. Perhaps your feet are in stocks. Your hands are chained up. And you're moaning over your situation. You're in a Roman jail. You're probably not getting out. It's dark. Trying to get in a position to get some sleep. And then all of a sudden, God is so good. What? God is so good. Who's singing? God is so good. He's so really actually good. And they're singing down there. And they're praising the Lord. And you and your chains are going, What is up with this? Other prisoners. Even if the world rejects your preaching of the gospel by daylight, they cannot help but hear your prison songs in the night. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work in the the mindset of culture to see someone going through a horrible situation and praising the Lord. To see someone struggling with a prison of despair and yet not despairing Someone who doesn't understand what's happening to them and yet continue to proclaim that God is so good. And Spurgeon said, any fool can sing in the day. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. Songs in the night. Worship in the worst of circumstances. Now there's one more prisoner who did not know, may not have realized how fully bound up he was. Let's continue on, verse 26. As they prayed, as they worshipped, suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison house was shaken. Okay, stop right there. A great earthquake? When was the last time there was a great earthquake in the book of Acts? Remember? Acts chapter 4. At the end of the chapter, when the believers gathered together, and what were they doing? They were praying. They were worshiping. They were praising God. And the house in which they were praying, the Bible tells us, was shaken. Why? Because God showed up. The prison house here is not just shaken because God is opening the doors to get them out. It's shaken because His presence is there. It's shaken because there's no prison that can hold Him. It's shaken because Jesus shows up. And the whole place begins to shake. Talk about jailhouse rock. (laughs) And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened because that's what happens when Jesus shows up. Think about this. Peter was in prison too, wasn't he? Back in Acts chapter 12. And how did God get him out? By earthquake? No. By angel. Taps him on the shoulder. Dude, let's go. Put your clothes on. Get your coat on. Let's go. What? Come on. Peter's in that kind of dream state. He doesn't know that this is really happening until he's out in the street and the cold wind of night hits him. And he goes, oh, wow. Dude, that was real. You remember the story. An angel secrets him away from the Jerusalem jail while Paul and Silas get an earthquake. Peter was sleeping and he got an angel kicking him. Get up, Pete. Paul and Silas are worshiping and they get an earthquake. I'd rather have an earthquake. If you're going to get me out of jail, God, that's how I want to be gotten out of jail. If I ever end up in jail, folks, pray for the earthquake because that would be so cool, right? Door opens. Yeah, that's what what I'm talking about. God is so good. He is really actually good. So they get this rocking, shaking, amazing thing. And the method the method of the release is not the point. The message of the gospel is the point. That is, Jesus Christ who came to us, as Isaiah 42 verse 6 says, a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So, jailhouse rock. Verse 27 says, When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So you have a jailhouse rock, and now the jailer's all shook up. 
Lynn doesn't like my Elvis puns. That's all right, Mama. Don't be cruel. I'm glad you're laughing, or it would have been a blue Christmas otherwise. Okay, so the thing is here, the incarceration is now on his head. Prison doors open, every prisoner can flee. He's a dead man. He is a dead man. There is no escaping this. Might as well put himself out of his misery right then. Now the jailer is the one on death row. Best just be done with it. Verse 28. But when Paul cried out with a loud voice, he cried out saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's an interesting question from this man. Because the Greeks and the Romans didn't have a concept of salvation. Oh, they had an idea of enlightenment, that you could become a more enlightened individual, but salvation... Do you realize that salvation is a uniquely Christian concept? Now, the Jewish people in the run-up to the coming of Messiah believed in resurrection, believed that they would not be abandoned to Sheol, as David wrote, but believed that there, would be, that there was something. But the concept, the idea of salvation, that is the full and complete cleansing of our sin to be forever in the glory and presence of God, is something that did not come along truly until Jesus was not understood. And this jailer from Philippi would not have had the concept of salvation when when he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What is he asking here? Saved from being thrown into prison and then executed himself? Probably. Probably. But you know what? It doesn't matter what he thought. It doesn't matter what he understood about salvation. Paul seizes the moment. Paul grabs hold of the opportunity to give him the gospel. And please remember, it doesn't matter why a person asks about salvation or about church or about Jesus or about your faith. It doesn't matter why. It doesn't even matter what their understanding is. Just seize the opportunity and bring them to Jesus. What must I do to be saved? And Paul launches into the gospel. I love that. Verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And note this, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all his house. Jesus had said in Mark 16, 16, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. It's that simple. Jesus said in John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. God made salvation so simple. It's as simple as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And the jailer, he he heard the word now wholeheartedly and is set free from the immediate and eternal prison of his own sin. How do you know he's set free immediately? Well, look at his response, verse 33. It says, He took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household, and he brought them into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Four things there that show us that belief evokes action. It's what James was talking about in his entire letter. The whole idea that faith without works is dead. Doesn't mean that you work your way to salvation. It means if you believe in the salvation of God, you're going to respond. You're going to get active. No one is saved and then just sits down. Doesn't work that way. When you know that you have been saved by grace, it moves you to act. And so the jailer, first thing he does is he washes their wounds. Which is interesting because he hadn't done that yet. Threw them into prison, bleeding and oozing, swelling up. But now he washes their wounds. Salvation rarely happens in a vacuum. 
And what I mean by that is it's rare that a person just gets kind of saved off by themselves. Usually, salvation has this, this ability to refresh and to revive others in addition to the one being saved. So he's getting saved here, and his first concern is the washing of the wounds of Paul and Silas. Reviving them, restoring them. Salvation is at work when you begin to see people, plural, people getting restored. One life saved can affect so many others. A refreshed heart refreshes other hearts. And so this jailer is now washing their wounds and then he gets washed himself. He gets baptized. And it is the biblical response of, note this, faith. It's the biblical response of faith. That is the obedience of baptism. I can't express this more clearly. That baptism is a belief statement. That baptism is you choosing the Lord and then being baptized because you chose to do so. The jailer and all his household chose to do so. To those of you who were sprinkled as infants, please hear me on this. I do not deny your faith now. But I invite you to act on that faith yourself and be baptized. Because you chose, you choose to do it. He washed their wounds, he gets washed himself, and next he brought the inmates into his own house. Now that's unusual. You're not going to see that happen a lot, but he brings them in and he feeds them. We see now the gift of hospitality at work in this man's life. As he cares for them. He has affection now for his newfound brothers in Christ. Because 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. One who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And the opposite is true as well, gang. Loving God causes me to love others. I can't hate someone and say I love God. If I hate someone, I'm hating God. But I'll tell you what, as I love God, I love people. It's a, it's a dynamic. John says this is the commandment we have for him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So we see this jailer now loving on Paul and Silas, washing their wounds, providing them with food. He gets baptized himself. It's an amazing night. And finally, note what happens. He rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Man, it's a party at the jailer's house that night. The worship and singing that began with two men in prison now is an entire family with those same two men in the house praising and worshiping God. They're rejoicing. It's a good night. Joy is contagious. It spills over. It overflows. Paul and Silas began the evening rejoicing. And now it's just overflowed into the jailer and his whole household joining in this gospel celebration. And note this, his whole household got saved that night. And some have used this to say, all you have to do is have one believer in a family and the whole family can be saved. Is saved. Simply by the faith of dad or the faith of mom. Let me say clearly to you that that is erroneous doctrine. That is not true. Remember... One get-out-of-jail-free card per person. And the reason why the jailer and all his household were saved. Why did Paul and Silas say that? Verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Because one man's faith can have a dramatic impact on his household. Paul knew with faith that man, if this guy gets saved, his family's going to get saved too. And they did. Well, what did it take for them to get saved? Verse 32. They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who are in his house. They gather the family and they open the Scriptures to them. They begin to speak the truth of Jesus to explain what's going on and how they could be singing in that prison cell in the first place and why they would submit to this incarceration and the joy that they had in the Lord Jesus. And I don't know if they went back to Hebrew Scripture and the prophets to say, listen to this, this was written by Isaiah. Look at how it's fulfilled in Jesus. Whatever they did, they taught the word of the Lord and the jailer and his household upon hearing the word believed. Every one of them. And got saved. It's the ripple effect of faith. And now we see in this family a great 
rejoicing. Don't give up in your families. Because the truth is, your faith may be the catalyst that causes your entire household to get saved. Each person is going to have to choose it themselves. But you keep believing. Even when you're in prison, let them see you in your pain, praising the Lord anyway. If you'd like to see the family get saved. Rejoicing. That's how the story ends, at least at this point, is this this moment of, of rejoicing. And it reminds me that from another Roman prison in another Roman town, actually Rome itself, Paul wrote to this church family at Philippi. And he said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you haven't prayed for this salvation, let me just say, please don't play around with eternity. It is no game. Sin is a prison. And there is only one way to get out of jail. You have to have the get out of jail free card of Jesus Christ. You cannot roll the dice and think that eventually you're going to hit doubles and get out. It doesn't work. Sin is a prison. Paul said this clearly, Romans 7.22, I concur joyfully with the law of God in the inner man. I love God's law. I relate to it, I understand it, it's beautiful, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in Romans 8.1 he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no prison that can hold you for long. If you're in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus said, listen, if the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. John 8.36 Jesus holds the monopoly on salvation. You believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, Believers especially. Listen up. Verse 35. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you, therefore come out now and go in peace. Which means what? Paul and Silas are back in the prison. Had a great meal. Had a great time of worship and rejoicing with the jailer. Now they're back in jail. Did he put them there? I don't think so. I think when the rejoicing settled down, Paul grabbed his stuff and said, Okay, Silas, let's go. Where are you guys going? Well, back to jail. What do you mean? Well, we were thrown into jail. We can't just walk away. So they're back in prison. And the magistrates say, Let them go out in peace. But Paul said, verse 37, They have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. In other words, Shaw. (laughs) But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates and they were afraid. Now who's in prison? They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans and they came out and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. This is just the funniest thing. It's one of the reasons I love Paul so much. He was so bold. They stayed in jail until the magistrates themselves came and cleared them of all charges. They weren't about to slink away unbeknownst to the people. There was a testimony here. There was a witness here. And there's a question that bothered me through this whole study. Why didn't Paul avoid the whole thing? 
Why, before the first beating began, before the stick hit his back, why didn't Paul right then go, <laughs> Roman citizen, and flash his ID? That would have been a get-out-of-jail-free card for him right there. Hey, we're Roman citizens. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it ten strikes into the beating. He doesn't do it when battered and bloody. They take him out to the prison and throw him in the deepest cell. He doesn't say, geez, we're Romans. He doesn't do it when the jailer puts his feet in the stocks. Paul, you could have avoided the whole thing. Why did you keep your mouth shut? There's a monopoly strategy we use in my house, perhaps you have as well. Toward the end of the game, if you're doing well and people are buying up spaces and houses and hotels are going up, if you land on go to jail, you stay in jail. You just sit there in jail. And let other people go around and land on your hotel on Park Place. And you roll the dice. Oh, I didn't get doubles again. Bummer, I guess I'll have to stay here another turn. So that you don't have to go around the board again, right? That's the monopoly strategy. Stay in prison. You may feel like you're in a prison of sorts. What if the Lord needs you to stay there? What if while we're crying, God, get me out, He's saying, wait a minute. I need you there. But it's not fair, Lord. What if your prison is about to result in the salvation of somebody else? Is it worth staying? What if one person gets saved because of the illness that you're going through? Because of the heartache that you're having to walk out? Because of the loneliness that perhaps you feel? What if one person gets saved because of the life that you've had to live? Is it worth it? I think there are times where Jesus would say to you, say to me, look, stay in jail a little while longer. Take the beatings. Go to prison. Watch this, verse 40. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Where did the brethren come from? Before they went to prison, it was Lydia and her household. So I guess that could be the brethren, but it'd be a very small group of brethren. It'd be more like a breath. (laughs) Suddenly there's brethren here? To this point, this little church all of a sudden has grown. Who are these brethren? And I suggest to you that the brethren in Lydia's house are now the jailer and his family, Lydia and her family, and perhaps at least some of the other prisoners. The formation of the church at Philippi. By taking the stripes, by going to prison and staying in jail, more souls were won, and it is a winning strategy that the world does not understand. Paul would later write to the church at Galatia, all the churches in Galatia. He would say in chapter 6, verse 17, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And it struck me this past week that the brand marks of Jesus are those received both for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of other people. You see, to be free in Christ is to be a prisoner of the Lord. Father, this morning we bow before You. And we with perhaps a little bit of trepidation, we would say to You, Lord, if by taking the beatings... Someone else can be saved? Then give us the strength to take the beatings. And if by staying in prison a day longer, someone else can be healed? Then we say, Lord, keep us in prison. What we're praying, what we're asking, what we're saying, Holy Spirit, is that our times, our lives are in Your hands. And so, 
knowing that we have salvation, knowing that we have the grace of God, knowing that we have the ultimate healing and future and satisfaction in Jesus, we would ask You, Lord, to use us and our lives however You see fit. We may be perplexed, Lord, but we will not be despairing because we have believed in the Lordship of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him resurrected. Father, I know that there are people in this body right now who are looking through bars, who are looking through a cell, who are looking through what seem to be insurmountable locks and chains. Lord, You can shake any jail free anytime You want. It is my prayer today that we would have the patience to rest and wait for Your timing. In Jesus' name, Amen.